When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 144 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast, presented by the iconic Empire Hotel on New York's Upper West Side. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a handsome and charismatic television executive-turned-on-air host, Andy Cohen. The 48-year-old is, for better or worse, largely responsible for creating the reality television era in which we now live, as the primary force behind Bravo's Real Housewives franchise. He also created and hosts a unique and popular late-night talk show, Watch What Happens Live, which also airs on Bravo. Cohen has been a part of the New York television scene since 1990 when he began a meteoric rise to prominence, initially behind the scenes at CBS, then at Barry Diller's startup cable network Trio, and starting in 2005 at Bravo, where he helped to develop and or oversaw shows like Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, Project Runway, for which he won a Peabody Award in 2007, Top Chef, for which he won an Emmy Award in 2010, and starting in 2006, a phalanx of shows about wealthy and often outrageous housewives, which, for millions of Americans, have become must-see TV, the modern successor to the soap opera. Cohen's colorful in-house commentary about the housewives led to a series of events through which he ultimately realized his real dream of being on TV himself as the host of his own talk show, which quickly gained a following and expanded from one night a week to two to its current five, and which made him the first ever openly gay host of an American late-night talk show. Over the course of our conversation at the Empire Hotel, Cohen and I discussed a wide range of topics. Among them, what it was like growing up as an ambitious but closeted gay boy in St. Louis at a time when he felt he couldn't acknowledge his sexuality to friends or family. How he made his way to New York and worked his way up the social and professional food chains. Why he initially resisted going to Bravo, resented some of the talent that he had to deal with when he arrived there, and ultimately championed the housewife's concept. How he responds to the not insignificant number of people who scathingly accuse him of dumbing down America, setting back feminism, and playing an instrumental role in creating a climate in which Donald Trump could become president of the United States. And why he came to love his work on Watch What Happens Live so much that he ultimately gave up his executive responsibilities to focus full-time on creating a late-night talk show unlike any other. Oh, and we also play a round of Cohen's trademark Plead the Fifth game and cover all sorts of other fun stuff. He's a great sport, and I hope you'll enjoy the conversation as much as I did. So, without further ado, let's go to it. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just gonna circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today. At LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Andy, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Normally, I get right into the questions, but I have to just share a quick little funny thing, which is that it turns out, unbeknownst to both of us, we were both at a very cool thing, a small thing at the same time in November 2009. I come into New York with a, a, a female friend of mine. I go to this little premiere of a, of a documentary about Valentino. Yep. And then afterwards, we hear there, you know, there's the after party at the Boom Boom Room, which I think was one of your yep. one of your places. And show up there, and it's kind of quiet and slow and whatever, and we're having fun. But, you know, just drinking, you know, goes gets late. All of a sudden, all hell breaks loose around us. And the event was being DJed by Madonna's boyfriend. Yes. Very young guy at the time. And we look around and, oh, Madonna has shown up and is uh, showed up and is hitting the dance floor, I guess, to try to get the thing going. So everybody around us, you know, we're not dancers, my friend and I, but we're looking around. Everybody else is seizing the moment and yeah. going dancing with Madonna. So we said, you know what? What the hell? Right. And there's nobody's ever, it's going to be a great story. Nobody's ever going to believe this because her people were knocking phones out of the way and whatever. So fine. Nobody did really believe it for years and years and years. Then I get a tweet. A few years later, somebody found a photo and said, is that you with Madonna on the stance floor? And I said, I couldn't believe it. I opened it up. I put it up on my social media. And the funniest thing was that everybody said, forget about Madonna. That's Andy Cohen to your that's right. so funny. So I don't oh know. It's the funniest. Fun- it oh, yeah, there I am. And that's my best friend Bruce with his hand around yes, her. Yes, he was not being Yeah, we shy. were just glomming onto her as right. much as we could. Well, she's one of your ultimates, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was she a- hasn't done my show. Well, not yet. She's on the list. Not yet. But that was that was hilarious That's because funny. Uh, that was really my introduction to to you because at that point it was 2009. That was the year my talk show. You were premiered. just going on, yeah. And, yeah. and I must say that prior to that, I was not really in the. I was not a housewives person, That's, you know. But it was yeah. a. It started me on. That's on funny. This. So anyway, where we normally begin is just the basic. Where were you born and raised? What did your folks do for a living? Born and raised in St. Louis, parents were in the food manufacturing and distribution business. My parents, my family owned this company since 1901. My great-grandfather started it, and I spent every summer working in the family business. I did everything from work on the assembly line to make deliveries. I drove a forklift, believe it or not. (laughs) Yeah, I was there every summer. I knew I wanted to work in TV. My family had no connection to TV. It was something totally foreign. And I just said, okay, I'm just going to break away. I knew that I could run the family business potentially Mm -hmm. if, you know, I wanted to stay in St. Louis and do that, but I didn't. So... Just to reiterate, you're growing up in the middle of the country. Yeah. Sounds like middle class. Yep. And 
what was your actual personal exposure and and level of interest in pop culture generally? Oh, it was it was the high. I mean, I was the guy in high school who subscribed to Interview Magazine, and I was like pouring over it. And I loved TV. I mean, there were three TV channels. I was glued to the TV. I wanted to be a part of it. Then cable came along when I was in kind of early high school or maybe eighth grade, something like that. And I was blown away by MTV and CNN. And I just, you know, and my original goal was I wanted to be myself on TV in some iteration. Which in those days was not a common thing It at wasn't. All. I mean, you know, maybe on morning television. Right. I, I don't know what that would have been. I want... I, I said to myself, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to study broadcast journalism. I had a great regard for broadcast journalism. It was a time when TV news kind of meant something. And I wound up working at CBS News in New York behind the scenes for 10 years. But before we even go there, let me ask this. The mechanics of TV interested you at at a very young age. I was reading about... The fact that this book, the I Love Lucy book, played a big part in your life. Why was that? I used to check it out from the library as much as I could. And it was behind the scenes. It was the behind the scenes story of the making of that show and how it came together and whatever. And I was just I was fascinated. I was like, here's my favorite one of my favorite shows. And wow, Lucy made Vivian Vance you know, be fatter than her. (laughs) And she was fighting with Desi and Desi revolutionized the way sitcoms were shot. And I just couldn't believe there was this big story behind the show. And I, and I was like, wow, people get, this is a business people get paid for. (laughs) And I could be a part of this. Okay. So another thing, just to set the scene before you go off to New York and really start on this path, What was it like, if it's not too personal to ask, growing up in the middle of the country at that time, knowing that you were a gay man? It was not great. I didn't have any gay role models. Uh, Gay people on TV at the time consisted of like Paul Lind and Charles Nelson Reilly, who were really punchlines. I mean, they were delivering punchlines, but, you know, it was not they were not aspirational to me. And so. That was not necessarily who I thought I wanted to become at some point. How early so, on did you know that was what you I were? knew I was gay from, you know, the time my dad was taking me to the tennis club when I was seven mm-hmm. and I was spending too much time in the locker room. <laughs> and so, yeah, no, that was that was in an idyllic childhood. That was definitely the um that was the hiccup and it was a big hiccup and it was something that kept me up at night. And I, you know, my parents were very accepting liberal family, but I did not think they would accept me. They didn't have any gay people in their lives. So they didn't find out until after high school and everything, right? You right. They out. found out in college, but a few months after I came out in college. But what's interesting also is that while you were still presumably living at home, still attending high school, you've said that It wasn't a matter of, you know, your peers necessarily either knowing or caring, because let's just note, if I have my notes correct, voted most talkative, biggest gossip, but also class president. You were a, you know, I was really popular. I was really popular. And, you know, I think in some level people must have. You know, they weirdly, they didn't know. It yeah. was just a different time. Yeah. It was, I graduated high school in 1986. It was just, think about it. The real world started, I think, in 90 or 91. And that was the first kind of gay guy my age that was on TV. So there was just not a representation of 
being gay around. There so just wasn't. Turmoil, it was gay people were dying of AIDS. Right, that was it. Which, and they were punchlines. So so any turmoil, though, that it caused was internal is what you're basically saying. Yes, yeah. absolutely. It was not something I discussed with anyone. Right. Yeah. So now, just sticking on high school for a moment, who were, I guess, Jean and Jackie? This is also Jeannie cool. and Jackie. Jeannie and Jackie. Uh, were two girlfriends of mine in high school who... Hilariously enough, I mean, here we are, it's 2017. I right. spoke to both of them this morning. Really? Here. Jackie's re- renovating my house in Sag Harbor. Okay. Jeannie, I posted a picture of on Instagram yesterday. We made plans for Memorial Day weekend. They're still very much a part of my life. But I call them the original Real Housewives because <laughs> I was stirring the shit up with them. Right. They you had know, a little feud or something? They were like friend of, They were best friends, but <laughs> frenemies. And they were like... My Alexis and Crystal, right. and uh, you know my Vicky and Tamra, however, <laughs> whatever analogy or metaphor you want to say, right? And you know, I was the guy that was like, "Oh well, you know, Jackie said that you, <laughs> you know, I mean, it was terrible, and now I'm doing it that, that you owe them royalties now, scale. yeah, right, exactly. Right. So even while you were in high school, you were laying the groundwork for the the career that would follow, right? Because there were you were. I guess in St. Louis, finding some internships and things. Yeah, I was an intern at the local CBS affiliate and at KMOX Radio, which was a big, the voice of St. Louis. I didn't want to work in radio, but I just would take any job in media that I could. And so you go off to college at Boston University. I've seen different reports. What were you pursuing as a major? I was pursuing broadcast journalism. Okay, yeah. and, and with what future in mind at that I point? I wanted what to be a, a reporter on a, you know, on a local station anywhere and with he, hopes of moving up the ladder to the biggest place I could get. Sure, and even while you're at BU, though, you start, that's when you first started going into New York to... No, I really came to New York. I interviewed Susan Lucci. She was my first big interview. She was, I had an assignment to write a, a feature story in a news writing and reporting class mm-hmm. about someone, and they said, reach for the stars, try to interview someone famous and get right. it published in the, in the free press. Yeah. And I did, and I got an interview with Susan Lucci, but then... I wound up interning at CBS News in New York. My summer before my senior year, I was accepted for internships at KSDK in St. Louis, which is very powerful NBC affiliate in Mm -hmm. St. Louis and at CBS News in New York. And I remember telling the woman at Channel 5 that I was going to instead accept the internship at at CBS in New York. And she said, you're making the biggest mistake of your career. And I said, what career? I don't have a career. And of course it wound up being the greatest thing I ever did because I wound up, it changed my course. Cause I said, Oh, okay. I'm no longer going to move from market to market. I just want to move straight to New York and be, I want to swim with the big fish sure. and I'll be a small fish. And I'll just, I was like, I'm going to move to New York. I'm going to start waiting tables until I got a job at CBS. Right. Cause I wanted to work at CBS and I didn't even have to start Why waiting tables. CBS? It was because I had, it was where I knew people. Yeah. You know, right. I, I, I had a, you know, I was an intern at the morning show, which, which, you know, was horrible. It was number three. <laughs> it was a laughing stock. But everybody was coming on the show. I mean, here right. I was in the green room with Henry Kissinger and right. Joan Rivers and all these people. And I was like, well, this is where it's at. Right. It's happening. Right. You right. know, so I wanted to be there. So it's, I guess, 1990. You just graduate. You're in your early 20s yeah you moved to the big city here what was what was your life outside of I guess so you immediately started working there but what was yeah. your personal life like 
My personal life was great. Yeah. I had a million friends. I mean, my Jeannie and Jackie moved to New York at the same time okay. I did. Yeah. So there they were. I had friends from college who moved to New York. And all my friends from then are still my great friends. Yeah. People talk about, oh, you have so many famous friends. And I do. And I've had these, you know, I've known Sarah Jessica Parker since 2000 or 1999. Right. But my, my, my real core group of friends has not changed. So the CBS period there was obviously went well. You're, you're worked your way up, uh, I guess, to senior producer of the early show in 48 hours, which, yep. you know, and how quick a turnaround was that? You know, I was at the time my rise at CBS was considered fairly meteoric because I was the youngest. I was the youngest associate producer Then I was the youngest producer. And I think I was the youngest senior producer, too, because that all happened when I was in my 20s, wow. I think. So, yeah, at the time, it was considered meteoric, yeah. I guess. And I was always the youngest. I forgot that. So why then in 2000, I believe, did you decide to leave? I had spent 10 years at CBS News for the entire 90s. And it was, I was back at the morning show. I was really comfortable. You would argue too comfortable. Yeah. I had... Exactly my life. I knew what I could get away with. I knew when I didn't have to show up. I would like go to L.A., spend 10 days there around the Oscars. I would do, you know, it was like, and I I had become friendly through my friend Bruce with Barry Diller at the time. And he said, you have to leave there. You have to leave there. And I was like, why? You know, everything's perfect. I'm really comfortable. He said, well, that's why. Like, you know. Why I left is he offered me a job to run programming at a cable startup called Trio that mm -hmm. he was starting, which was meant to be an arts and culture channel in the vein of kind of kind of what you want PBS to be, right. kind of more right. in the vein of Channel 4 in the UK, creating kind of smart, buzzworthy documentaries right. and original programming. And I knew how to produce television, but I didn't know much more than that. I knew about booking. I knew... You know, so, but I didn't know about budgets. I didn't know about ad sales, marketing, right. anything. So I, and it was a startup. So it was about a, it was about a year or two after I was there that the channel wound up even getting on air. Right. So it was, I learned from the ground up about starting a cable channel and what that meant. And the, you know, from Barry Diller and Stephen Chow. So I have Barry to thank really for my career in cable. And is that also where you first cross paths with somebody that you continue to work with, I think, Lauren Zelaznik? Lauren Zelaznik, yes. Lauren wound up taking over for Trio a few years into my run there. Trio, we were Barry's company merged with Universal. Then Universal and NBC merged. NBC Universal pulled the plug on Trio, moved Lauren Zelaznik to Bravo. <laughs> Lauren said, I want you to come run programming at Bravo. And I said to myself, I don't want this job. I don't <laughs> identify with the Bravo brand, which was hilarious. Yeah, what how, was it at that well, time? Well, it was really gay, which is so funny. It was gay weddings. It was right. queer eye, queer, yeah. boy meets boy. 
I wanted to go run programming at Logo, which was just starting. And I interviewed with Brian, Brian Graydon and I did not get the job. And I kind of to this day can't get over that right, I didn't right, get the right. job because there's no one gayer. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I just. But can't also get over ask, it. ask yourself this. Why did you not want to go to Bravo? I have no idea. I have no <laughs> idea. But it just it's another life lesson where it's like the job you think you want to get like you know, maybe isn't the job that right. you were meant to get because I would say that it was destiny that I went to Bravo. I became Bravo Andy. Lauren wound up through a series of events putting me on the air and my goal of being on the air was fulfilled years after the fact. Right. Oh, you know, 16, 17 years later. Well, let's, let's break that. Okay. Let's break down how that happened. Because first of all, so your job title initially there was programming executive is that or what was that or was my original job title at bravo was in charge of production okay so my team made the shows and there was another team that developed the shows and what were the shows i get credited with creating the real housewives yeah in fact amy intercasso davis yes developed the real housewives of orange county brought it over to me and sherry levine and francis barrick we then produced it and, you know, kind of turned it into what it is. Right, right, right. But you're also working with a lot of other shows at that time, Well, right? the shows... So Project Runway had wrapped the first part of its first season. We hadn't shot the finale. So now we're in post on Project Runway. Took over production of Queer Eye, which was a real bear. Because all those guys now were super famous. And half of them were acting like assholes. Right. <laughs> I mean, it was talent management. And right. it was... It was a lot. That was a huge bear. That took up a lot of hours of my day. Because they were still delivering big ratings? Yeah, it was a huge show. It was a big franchise show for the channel. So you had to deal with it. And it was a great show. Yeah. But it was a nightmare. And they were (laughs) but they were also being nominated for Emmys every year. Right. We develop you know, so then Lauren Zelaznik says, I want to do for food what we did with fashion. So we work with the magical elves and we create Top Chef. Mm -hmm. And that was a show that I think, I don't even think development even had any, I think that went straight to production mm-hmm. because we knew we were, it was an automatic green light. That was a show that gave me so many sleepless nights because we did not have a host for season one until I want to say two or three days before we oh started because we hired Padma and then she bailed on us to go shoot a mini series in India. We had no host. We were going out to everybody. <laughs> and I remember meeting someone brought me Katie Lee Joel. And I was like, you know what? She's a foodie. And we told her to be re- we produced her horribly because we told her to be really stern. Right. And because we didn't think anyone would take her seriously because she had a southern accent and she was like 24. <laughs> and, you know, now Katie Lee is this big, you know, food person. Right. And but at the time <laughs> she didn't have credibility and right. whatever. But. So that's how Top Chef, right. you know, that was the beginnings of that. Gosh, Millionaire Matchmaker, yep. Rachel Zoe, Flipping Out, Million Dollar Listing. And you came to enjoy all this stuff? I loved yeah. it. No, yeah. it was amazing. Yeah. No, it was amazing. And I became Bravo Andy. So in the course of this and in the course of The Real Housewives and in the course of really the success of Project Runway, Lauren Zelaznik said, I started emailing them dishy 
stuff from the set of a show and she said you should write a blog on the Bravo website you'll be the only television executive that's writing a blog I start writing a blog then I start getting interviewed on CNN and various things because there's a TV executive who can talk about TV right then she says I want you to do a show on bravotv.com that's like an after show after Top Chef and Project Runway I do that then we need someone to host a reunion show because Housewives season two, right. Orange County is hitting. Right. I do a reunion show. Now this, I'm like, this is my big, this is amazing. Because you're now getting to do what I'm you really wanted to do. I'm getting to be on the air. Right. But I didn't want Lauren or any, or Francis to think that I thought that I was valuable as an on-air person. So I was like, just pay me a dollar. Pay me as little as you can pay me. They're like, we have to pay you for this stuff. I remember saying like, pay me a hundred dollars. Right. Like I don't want, because I knew they could get someone else to do it who yeah. was a name. And so anyway, and I started doing, I became kind of reunion show guy. Sure. And then Michael Davies, now I'm running production and development. Right. So now, I have, now I'm EVP of all production and development. I've got like 30 shows. Right. I've got massive development slate. I mean, this is serious development. Yeah. We're developing scripted. We were developing girlfriends. Right. Guide. We were developing odd mom out. And then Bravo, Michael Davies, who is my patron saint in television, besides right. Lauren and Francis right. comes to Bravo and says, I have this little studio. He took me out for lunch after he saw me hosting a flipping out reunion. Right. And he said, you are talent. You are on air talent. Right. And I was like, I was so excited that someone outside the network was looking at me like I there was something in me that could work on TV that I was just really flattered. And he said to Bravo, I can do Andy's show that he's doing online from my little studio. And I remember in 2009, my a good friend of mine died suddenly. And a week later, I took a week off from work. A week later, I came back and they Bravo said do you want to do your show on air? And I thought, wow, isn't this ironic? This is my big break. Right. And, but because my friend died, it's like, it was actually, it put everything in perspective. Right, right. Because I was like, it just really was a good check for me because, and it it was just good perspective. Sure. And so I do the show. I'm sweating profusely. We don't have air conditioning in the clubhouse, (laughs) but we're live at midnight on a Thursday night. And, you know, it wasn't, it makes me cringe when I watch it now. We try to do a lot and my face is tense, but I remember I wasn't nervous. I was, I remember like right before air, I went to the bathroom and I was in there and I looked at myself in the mirror and I was like, you got this. This is, you know, (laughs) this is your thing. And so At the time, the biggest thing that upset me at the time was when people said I gave myself my own talk show. Because there was this assumption, all right, there's an exec with his own show. Exactly. He must have given it. Right. And, you know, the truth is you can't give yourself your own talk show. I couldn't have said to Lauren and Francis, I want to be the face of the network. Right, right. And that didn't happen until years later. Sure. People started calling me, oh, he's the face of Bravo. And, you know, one needs to understand that if one is head of programming for a channel and one goes to their boss, because everybody has a boss, right, right, right. and says, I want to be the face of the channel, or I want to host a late night show, the answer is 99% of the time going to be, go do your job yeah, your and make job. hit shows. Right, right, you know right, what I mean? Right. We had a lot of hit shows. Yeah. And I was kicking ass as a production right, executive right, right. and development executive. I had a great team. I knew how to delegate. I knew, you know, I was... 
always there. I always answered my emails. I always responded. You I was taking in your the meetings. Off the ball for I never yeah. took my eye off the ball. I'm at. I'm on my show at midnight. I am at a programming meeting at 9 a.m. the next morning. Right. So, and what happened is the ratings were good, and that's the other thing. If the ratings had been bad, you're gone. I. No one looks at the ratings before I do right. in the morning, and I know these ratings are good. These are bad. If right. the ratings were bad, I would have gotten canceled. So, before we go any further down the road with with your own show, let's go back to the Housewives because even before people knew you as the the guy who's doing Watch What Happens Live, you were the Housewives guy, right? Mm-hmm. And le- I think it's important maybe for, for folks who who need to be brought up to speed. Let's just contextualize this. The, the original Real Housewives was Real Housewives of Orange County. Goes on the air in 2006. You're one of the EPs, as we said. What was the context in which that showed up in the scene? Were, you know, what came before Desperate it? Desperate Housewives. That was, was the big the context. Thing. Desperate Housewives was the biggest hit on TV. And so here we are developing a show about neighbors in Orange County in a gated community whose hair is blonder, their boobs are bigger, they're all rich, they're like varying degrees of hotness. And it became, to me, look, they all went to the same tennis club. I was like, this is like Peyton Place or Knott's Landing. Literally, they live in a cul-de-sac. So we called it the real housewives, not the desperate housewives, but there are desperate housewives, but they're the real housewives. And still to this day, people call the show the desperate housewives. (laughs) That was the context. And And Lawrence Zelaznik had the brilliant idea right before we premiered of saying, we're going to call it the real housewives of Orange County. And I was like, that's so dumb. She said, we're doing it in case we ever do it anywhere else. I go, we're never doing it anywhere else. <laughs> we almost canceled the first season because we were getting, it was tough to produce. It was. Also, how do you explain what this is? It seems like. It, well, yeah. we we kind of said it's a real life Desperate Housewives. Okay. Yeah. And also though, just to mention, I don't know if any of these things actually were on your guys' radar. You're thinking about it at the time, but just culturally, this was only a few years after the OC, the the yep. narrative. Well, that was the other thing. There was the OC in Laguna Beach, so it almost seemed tired. Right. It almost seemed like we were getting into the OC at the wrong time. It had been played out. Plus, reality's blowing up everywhere. You have right around that time, think Simple Life, as you say, Laguna Beach, the hills, keeping up with the Kardashians maybe right after. There was no, it wasn't like the safe bet at that point. Obviously. Well, we were doing reality, but right. it was, it was, no, it was not, it was not necessarily a bet at all. Some people have asked, first of all, you know, how do you even find these women? Forget the first well, season, but like generally now it's well, everywhere. What was great is that in the first groups, Amy's team had been developing a show called Manhattan Moms. Okay. They were developing around a group of women in Atlanta that was going to be about a show called Hot Lana, about how Atlanta was the black Hollywood. And so we had these shows in development, but I think Amy went out and found the Jersey Housewives with sirens and said, okay, let's find a group of women who all know each other. So basically how the original casting people found women, you know, and in New York, they were going to country clubs. They went to Bridgehampton Polo, which is where, a lot of douchey people hang out <laughs> who might want to be on TV. Right. So, you know, and we looked for groups of real friends. So that's what you're looking for in them. What do you think these women, especially how they've seen... One thing money cannot buy is fame. 
Okay, but period. knowing that the fame is going to come at the price of exposing themselves, not always in a very flattering light. You know what? They don't One care. One thing money cannot buy <laughs> is fame. Fame so, is an aphrodisiac. And to your point, not only fame, but there's the potential for some of them have done well, very listen, well. This is this is before branding was really a thing. So if you look at Bethany, you've got to give her credit in season one of The Housewives for sitting there with Luann saying, oh, I made up my own cocktail. It's called the Skinny Girl Margarita. She was and this is it. what it is. Right. And she had a company called Bethany Bakes. And that's why she went on The Housewives. She wanted to promote her brand of freaking muffins and that wasn't something where you guys are saying this is not your vehicle to so, you know sort of surreptitiously get promote your your stuff we you, liked it because that was her real job we wanted women who had real things going okay it we resented the women who were just finding stuff or New York, we always had the hardest time with because people were coming up with stuff. Jill Zarin was like shilling this and that <laughs> and the other. And we were like, this is gross. You have to stop. Well, so sticking on Bethany Frankel for a second, just to, you know, for anybody who, who maybe isn't a follower of this stuff, debuted on Real Housewives of New York 2008. 2010, she gets her own spinoff show on Bravo, Bethany Getting Married. And in by early 2011... She cover sold, of Forbes magazine. Cover of Forbes sold the Skinny Girl cocktail line for it's been reported anywhere from eight to one hundred twenty million dollars. But regardless, yeah. that's a hell of a cover of Forbes. She was yeah. living in a really shitty one bedroom apartment when she started shooting on Housewives. So when you see that, what goes through your mind? Makes me super proud of her. I'm super excited. But for I mean, the show just the potential. Of, what, what, what I mean from the point of the view of the show is like you've got something that can do that. Yeah, but it. You know what? It has to be right. And the idea has to be good. It's so much more than the show because there are 10,000 products that they that the women have tried to launch that right. have gone completely. There's a warehouse full of Fabellini <laughs> somewhere that Teresa Judice is right. you know, paying rent right. on. But she did become a best-selling author. She You've did, got other yeah. people doing uh, people, you know, using some of them for, for very good things, causes and whatever, using the platform. But why do you think, in terms of your audience for those shows, why do you think people generally, but especially women, watch these shows in such large numbers? What's the alert? Because it's the modern soap opera, and we love yeah. to judge human behavior, and <laughs> the themes are, the casting is great, and the themes are universal, being a wife, being a mother, being a friend, and it's real, and it is, there are real stakes between these friends, and it's relatable. So how enough. real is it? Because that always comes up. Is there any degree of... There's no storyboarding. Yeah. There's no... We have to plan where they're eating. They're encouraged to think on camera. Yeah. They're encouraged to talk about what's been going on with them. And while the Housewives franchise was becoming this phenomenon, you were simultaneously still involved with these other things. Yeah. Winning in 2007 a Peabody for as, a, as an EP of Project Runway, 2010 an Emmy as EP of Top Chef. And yet, I wonder how you handled, because, you know, these are, some would argue, high, there's the highbrow, there's the lowbrow side of Andy, right? Some I've always been a high-low guy, and Bravo's yeah. always been a high-low guy. But did, So when some people, though, in some of the circles where half the time you're spending your time are saying to you, you know, giving you flack for, for bringing housewives into the world, for instance. Yeah. People got increasingly, especially now that we have a reality yeah. president, yeah. you know, some people say, are you responsible for dumbing down America or whatever? You know, what's your I'm answer I'm responsible to that? for entertaining some people in America. Right. There are a million channels. Right. And, you know, Donald Trump, 
is a jackass, yes. but he is someone who knows how to speak in front of a television camera and people relate to that. And he's someone who will say anything and he entertained people and he captivated the media and he did every interview that he would do. And while Hillary Clinton wasn't doing any interviews. And so he, he did something, he captured a movement. And you know? to your point, I want to quote back to you and then ask for your reaction. This is something that was in the New York times just recently quote, Trump was not not like one of Cohen's housewives. He knew he had to be entertaining to stay on the show. He was willing to say anything to get his contract extended. Throughout his campaign, he pulled the I know something, but I'm not going this, to say this it is now. All what I've said. This is all what I told a reporter from The Times. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. No, yeah. but I mean, I want to I want to yeah. expand on this. Most recently employed, the, but I'm not going to say it now, Trick. Most recently employed by Bethany Frankel about dirt she has but won't reveal about both Dorinda yeah, and Jules. Yeah, he's a housewife. Yes, and just keep just just because this is a testament to you, I think, in some way at the at the debates, the candidates fought for time to speak and demanded that they be allowed the time they were promised, which is what happens at the reunions. And it goes on to say, quote, Anderson Cooper was a moderator of a debate in St. Louis that ended with the candidates saying something nice about each other, which is exactly how Cohen ends some Real Housewives reunions, close quote. Would there be a President Donald Trump without reality TV generally Probably and not. without you specifically? Well, no. There would not be a Donald Trump, I don't think, without reality TV, but I will not, please do not hang Donald Trump <laughs> on me. I don't accept that. Okay. But he does act like a season one Orange County housewife. Right. Yes, I've been saying it for years. <laughs> okay, so the last of these things were just how you respond to the flack, and then we move on to yeah. more. But, but what about from a feminism perspective? Are these shows good for women? And the reason, let me just tee it up here. We had Gloria Steinem on this podcast. Yes, she hates the house rise. And, and I know was, she says that it's we, a, we didn't even ask her about it. We said, talk to us about the Kardashians. Yes. And this was her answer. Quote, it isn't the individuals who are at fault. It's the culture that says... You were rewarded for your outsides, not your insides. But I regret it, and it's painful. It's not quite as painful as The Housewives, which is perhaps the most painful. That's the closest to a female menstrual show that I can imagine. But again, I understand why. Those women are looking for a way to start their businesses or get to be known. So it's not to criticize the people who are in the game. It's to change the game. It's embarrassing, close quote. Is that unfair? I think it's fine that she feels that way. Right. And I think if it was the only representation of women on television, I think that this would be a real, real serious conversation. Right. It isn't. There are many, many portrayals of women on television. And I know that Gloria Steinem has not watched a full season of Any Housewives right. where there are moments of incredible greatness and triumph and strength and beauty for the female race. It wouldn't still be working. Listen, if it was just a ratchet buffoonery, it would not still be going as strong as it is. It just wouldn't. There are, you know, moments of beauty and strength in these shows. There there just are. And I and there are millions of smart, strong feminists who watch and love the real housewives and somehow identify with the women. Listen, there are some bad role models on the show. And there are also some good ones. Mm -hmm. If it was only bad, it, it couldn't sustain itself. Yeah. So in the midst of it becoming this phenomenon, which regardless of how anyone feels, it certainly is, you, you know, we've said it's July 2009. You go on now for the first time with Watch What Happens Live as this basically uh, uh, an after show for initially yes. Top Shelf, then Real Housewives. Talk about how small a thing this started out as, because you mentioned well, I mean, there was not even a is. fan. I mean, it's still, yeah, there was no <laughs> fan. I mean, we were in this small room and- uh, 22 seats? 
Yeah, 22 seats. It started as a Housewives after show. And the great thing about it was what it started as is still exactly what it is today. We're still the only live show in late night. Why is that a asset? Because in this universe of everything changing every half hour, it's a real asset for us, especially in pop culture. It allows us to be on top of pop culture and news. It also, you know, and timely in a way that that other people aren't. I mean, even if you if you look at the late night shows that are about politics, they tape at five. Right. I mean, it's six hours yeah, later they're getting on the air. I mean, six hours at this moment. Now, I don't do a lot of politics, but I certainly can be super reactive mm-hmm. when pop culture news breaks and when news breaks. Also, the live thing is I feel like we've I'm surprised in my mind. We've created an entirely new genre in late night television, which can only be compared to what Howard Stern has done for years on morning television, on morning radio model for you, right? He's a big model for me. I go there in a way that no other late night host does. And I did it at the beginning and we start talking about the show is an after show for housewives. And that's important because the housewives are my whack pack. They (laughs) are. And Howard has his whack pack and they're my, they are, are my testing ground and they're the people who I could originally drink with and they're the people that I could ask anything and you can always could book always book except you know the brilliant thing that I did from the beginning is I got real housewives fans from the beginning because I knew that the show was not going to sustain itself right. and I didn't want it to be a show that only housewives was on so in that first initial batch I was calling on people that I knew and friends to come on the show. I had Sarah Jessica Parker. I had Tina Fey. I had Mm -hmm. Liam Neeson, Jerry Mm -hmm. Seinfeld. Now, Liam and Jerry didn't talk about the Housewives. So that's when I was proving to Bravo, this show can be more than a show about the Housewives. That's what I was doing. And that's what it became. And I think they early on very smartly saw, well, wait a minute. Now we have someone besides Jim Lipton who's getting huge stars to come on Bravo, but they're playing games and they're drinking and they're making news. And bringing down your audience age quite a bit. Absolutely. And, you know, we were... I, I, what's so important to me about the, how the Housewives have impacted me on Watch What Happens Live and how Howard Stern has is the notion of me going there. And I know Bravo has a big ad campaign saying he goes there right now. Mm -hmm. But it's true because this is the only show in late night television where you're going to see a host going there in the way of trying to generate news and ask questions and be dangerous. I want this show to feel dangerous and unscripted and sometimes awkward and always exciting. We don't pre-interview our guests. It is not canned. They don't come and say, Andy loved the story when you, whatever. We let the conversation go and and it always pays off. And to your point about sort of what sets it apart from other shows, you know, Cord and Mike quibble, but you're the only guys that have a real open bar right yeah I know yeah that was it. it's there in the background but he, he doesn't use it you guys uh, use yeah, it yeah I know he said at the yeah. beginning he was like we're the only late night show that has a bar yeah. I'm like you gotta sweetie, use it I've yeah. been on the show for <laughs> I, on the air for like eight years right, already right right yeah I and mean, I don't know if CBS would actually let them drink on the on yeah, the show yeah no we so, absolutely uh, drink. so there's yeah. that also from the beginning 
interactivity with the audience. Well, that's the other thing. We knew that if we were going to be live, we were going to be interactive. And so this is the that's the other reason why live is so important to us. The audience they generate the conversation. So we've got a million polls going every episode. People are calling. I've got people on Twitter calling bullshit to what people are saying right. on the show <laughs> and saying, you know, as simple as like, I love your shoes. Who made those? I mean, those little things where the audience can get in there. It just it helps me dictate what people want to know. If you were to sort of step outside of this for a second and try to dissect the audience member let's say your average viewer, it may have started, maybe the initial lure was the housewives, but what is the, what is the underlying reason why they are into this guy who they probably didn't really, maybe they, maybe they'd heard of as a guy behind the housewives, but right. You know, is it because you're very open about your own life, the set, it creates a very intimate feel. It seems like it's your place. Yeah. But is it aspirational that they see what your life is like and they want to... I think imp- it's because I'm their friend. And I think people view me as their friend. Yeah. And people come up to me every day. And TV is very intimate. And I share on social media and I share on the show. Right. But to me, this show is about me and the people watching. And we're doing it. We're in it together. Because the viewers are a part of the conversation. So they're in on it. So I think when people come up to me and say, you don't realize it, but we're, you know, like you're my best friend right. or we're friends. I'm like, no, I do. Like, <laughs> you know, and and if I can be their buddy, then that's, that is great to me. Then I've done my job. It's, you know, if I'm tucking people in at night, that's that's an intimate yeah. thing. Oh yeah. I say I I say I'm a fluffer for straight guys <laughs> because like I get their wives all hopped up and then they you know I'm gone in a half an hour right. and they've been playing the drinking game and it's like hey honey and I'm like you're welcome straight guys. That's great. But the that's other great. great thing is that I, there are more guys that come up to me and say you know what my wife got me into your show and I never miss it and I don't even really watch the housewives but I love your show, you know so. The great thing is we're 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 we have the housewives a couple nights a week and then you know the other three were everything else. And I think that's that's I also think that speaks to the sensibility of what's going on in the culture. Reality stars are stars now, legitimate. You know, it's different. They're on the cover of Us magazine. So so I think that's that's why Watch What Happens Live resonates in a way that others don't. All too. that explains why why viewers want to watch. What I wonder if you can explain is why do you think you get away with the sort of questions with guests that they might not put up with from other people? What's, what's And the, knowing that that's what they're signing up for, they still come. I think it's partly, I think they want a good time and they want something spontaneous. My show is an easy show to do. We don't do a pre-interview. Mm-hmm. People hate, I hate doing yeah. pre-interviews. You sit there trying to come up with funny stories that have happened to you for the last six weeks. Right. It's, I'm not a, I'm not, I'm situationally funny. I'm not a comedian. Right. So like, I don't have a routine to go in and do. And so, and same with most of my guests. It's, it's fun. I think people who are doing the talk show rounds, I think they like to challenge themselves. Right. And also, I think it's an aspirational place that people want to be. I think, yeah. you know, so many people are now do, coming and doing my show and they're like, I can't wait to do this. Oh, my God. I can't <laughs> wait to see what happens. They can't wait to see what right. happens. But the other thing is, I know that they know that I'm celebrating them. Mm-hmm. If I ask a really pointed plea, the fifth question 
listen, I'll take any answer. It's just the gift of the universe that people actually will reveal well, stuff. Engage, you know, right? the the show's popularity and yours obviously are largely intertwined, and so the show moved to two nights, and then I guess in January 2012, five nights, yeah. and obviously a larger space, 50 seats, I believe. And as the fan base- We have 30 seats. 30 now. seats? It was uh, 22, and now we're like 33 30. or something like that. We're in a new studio, which is upstairs from our old studio, and we have real green rooms now. We're right. not like breaking down our conference room right, and make right. green rooms. So how, though, as the show's taking off, did your life change, and how did that- greater familiarity with you impact the way that you go about doing the show. It must be a little different. It's actually fairly, you know, there've been little tweaks that have, but the truth is it is as spontaneous and as organic a growth as it could ever be. And but you don't feel like now, okay, so I'm in the club. I'm going to be a little bit more timid about how I ask oh, something no. or I'm going to be a little less crass or whatever it might be. It doesn't, mm -hmm. You I'm going to be me because <laughs> the thing is the viewers will cry bullshit on me. You know, they, they are part of the conversation. Right. And so they want me, you know, it's what they expect. It's what the show is. And there's n no other show like it. So no, in late 2011, as the show was about to expand to the five nights a week, your day job began to change and, and has subsequently Continued to. Oh, change. I left my day job. Right. Yes. But that was when by the by the time 2013. Right. Then yes. it's all gone. Yes. So I spent one year running. I, I took away my production job, and then I was in charge of development with an incredible team. So for a year, I was doing the show five nights a week and running development at Bravo, which is a lot. Yeah. But if you consider that now I'm five nights a week and I'm still EP of all the housewives. I'm doing reunion shows. I have my own radio channel right. on Sirius. I'm touring with Anderson. Yeah, I'm writing books. books. Yeah. So I, I still have yeah, pretty full. Play. Yeah. But do you, does any part of you miss the, the stuff that you were doing before the show or are you not happy really? That? Because I'm developing and producing shows out of my production company. Right. I have a show called Andy Cohen then and now right. I just went to Bravo with two other pitches for other shows, not involving me. Mm -hmm. I'm hosting love connection yes. on Fox. I am a producer of everything I do and I'm still the very active executive producer of watch what happens live and the housewives. Right. So that is where I can work my muscle. May I take a page out of your book? And you referenced Plead the Fifth. Yeah. Can we, can we do a, uh, do a round? It. Yeah. Okay. So just so people who aren't familiar with it, I mean, basically three questions. You can evade one by pleading the fifth. Exactly. So first of all, to begin with a, a game that, that you call politely Mary Shag Kelt. Yeah. Of your Howard's game. Howard's game, right. Yeah. Of your current late night competitors, you have to pick one for each. Oh, of the okay. Who would I marry? Who would I shag? And who would I kill? I would marry. Oh God. Okay. <laughs> I would marry Jimmy Fallon. Mm -hmm. I would shag. Huh? Who would I shag? <laughs> I would shag Kimmel. <laughs> who would I kill? See, when Chelsea was on at eleven, I would have killed her because she was my competition. <laughs> I guess I would kill. Corden, because he has guests out at the same time, right. his format is the most like mine. And he and he's still going on about his bar. So that's yeah, really <laughs> okay. Number two, were you ever approached about replacing Regis Philbin or later Michael Strahan? No, I was never not. even. I subbed with Kelly. There was never, I, you know, there was never a real conversation. No. 
who is the celebrity guest who you came to dislike the most after actually interacting with them? See, I could bleed the fifth right now. I will say, you know, I had higher hopes for one of our great political minds, Scott Bayo, Mm -hmm. (laughs) who was on. And then I guess I was being very I love Scott Bayo. I'm a huge Scott Bayo fan, but I think. We played a game called Andy Loves Crotchy, like Joni Loves Crotchy, <laughs> yes, yeah. where he had to guess like celebrity crotches of ex-girlfriends. Oh, God. And at Mrs. Scott Bayo decided she hated the game and was like tweeting me all during the thing and oh then blocked me God. on Twitter. And then, But I don't dislike him right. because, again, he is one of our great political minds. <laughs> and so maybe him. All right. Just to try to get away with one other one. Uh, okay. What's the drunkest you've ever been on your show? You know what? In the early days, I used to get really (laughs) hammered on the show because they would really... I was so excited about drinking on the air. It was such a novelty. And we were on at midnight. And I just felt like I was freaking Johnny Carson or something. I don't know who I thought I was. (laughs) But I was just... Yeah, Dean Martin. I just was really excited by it. Then that got a little old. and But there was an episode with Kylie Minogue and Elijah Wood. And... Uh, yeah, I saw Kylie Minogue like six months later at the Met Ball, and I said, oh, my God, that was so fun. We were so drunk. And she goes, you were so drunk. And I was like, uh-oh, I can't do this. You got to go back and watch that one. Yeah. I'll have to go back and watch. Right. But uh, a final question, just big picture, is obviously a lot has happened in the last roughly a decade, right? So, yeah, I mean, what do you make of that now that, you know, we've sat here and and kind of, I, I don't know how often you, you go, go through, through it all it like all. this. Yeah. But, you know, A, what do you make of it? And B... What's on the bucket list, though? I mean, you've, you've obviously, you're obviously an ambitious, creative guy. Right. What's left to do? I What I make of it is that the great thing is that my passion for what I was doing at the time was always led to my happiness. And I feel like that was a circle. And not to get to Oprah, but I do. I remember when I started at CBS News, just the fact that I was getting a check right. that said CBS on it. I thought I had made it then. And then I thought every job I've had, I thought I made it. So I was never looking like, I never got too political. I never got too crazy. I'm not saying I was never ambitious because I've always been ambitious, Mm -hmm. but I was always passionate and happy. And I think if you can be happy with the opportunities that you have and are given, that's going to make you better at your job. And it certainly made me better at my job. And You know, I took one or two big risks, which really paid off. But, you know, just the fact that you can't, you can't, I just let everything happen organically. And I'm so glad that I did. And in terms of my bucket list, you know, weirdly love connection is kind of, was kind of a big bucket list. It's a big network show. I, I, I've wanted to do a big network show. It's also a show that is perfectly suited for me. It has game elements, which I've always wanted to kind of host a game show. Mm -hmm. And so I just think the combination of the six or eight things that I'm doing right now, I don't really have anything left on my bucket list. I wouldn't want to do a network late night show at this point. No one that I know watches TV at Mm. 1230 in the morning. Mm -hmm. So like there was a moment in time where there were openings at 1230. And I was like, the truth of the matter is I don't even watch TV at 1230 and I'm up at 1230. So like, I just feel like so many people come up to me and say, oh my God, I stay up late to watch your show. My show's on at 11. Mm -hmm. People have jobs. A lot of people watch my show in the morning. They DVR and watch it in the morning. So I love my time slot and I love that I'm live. 
I, I really, and, and Bravo has been such an incredible home for me and they've allowed me to do so much and they've allowed Watch What Happens Live to really grow into something super unique that I'm very proud of. Without the kinds of checks and balances that you probably would have to deal with at a network. Absolutely. They don't, they have not, Frances Barrick has not given me a note. She has encouraged me to be myself. And she, the one note that she gave me was to shave my beard once because she didn't like my (laughs) beard. She didn't like it. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Appreciate it. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.